Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. It's Friday. Everything's terrible. You deserve a bonus episode. My guest is Sonia Bonspiel-Boileau, a writer and director whose filmography includes the documentary Last Call Indian, the drama Le Depp, and the television series Mookie and Skindigenous. Her new feature, Rustic Oracle, is a thoughtful and complex drama about the plague of missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada, told through the eyes of an eight-year-old girl in the mid-1990s. It's just arrived on digital and on demand after a run on the festival circuit and a stop at British Columbia's Leo Awards, where it was named Best Picture, with Carmen Moore winning Best Actress, and you should check it out. Sonia picked Dirty Dancing, Emil Argolino's immortal 1987 love story about the romance that blossoms between a privileged young woman and a working-class dance instructor at a Catskills resort in 1963. Or it's about the blistering chemistry between Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze. Or it's about the deepening of the relationship between Grey's character, Baby, and Baby's father, played by Jerry Orbach in one of the all-time great character actor turns. Or it's about how perfect Patrick Swayze was in a role that couldn't have been better suited to his specific blend of sensitivity and masculinity. Anyway, however you remember it, Dirty Dancing has more going on than you might remember. And that's why we're talking about it today. This is someone else's movie. So I had these movies in my head. And I was like, oh, damn, there it goes. There it goes. And I was like, well, one of my favorite films is I saw Z. Like, it's a good movie to talk about. Jenny Genève is like, you know, amazing. But then I'm going through and I, I see all these like cult 80s references and, and people's, you know, and, I'm, and, then, and then I started thinking, well, the movie that probably impacted me the most in my entire life is Dirty Dancing. It must be there somewhere. So I'm scrolling and scrolling and I'm like, how is this even possible that no one has, you know, spoken about Dirty Dancing yet? So I was like, yes, all for it. And it's Friday, Friday afternoon. We're in a pandemic. Why not talk about Dirty Dancing instead of something that's so heavy like Incendi? And, and, and Rustic is... I've been talking about rustic for so long now, and that's quite hard and heavy. And ugh, so I'm kind of happy to be talking about this. Yeah, well, that's Lucky, the you know that's that was how I pitched the how I used to pitch the podcast to people was the idea that whatever's going on, the guest is going to need a break from talking about their own thing. And it's so true. <laughs> hopefully, this will be re-energizing. But yeah, it is. I mean, I I I, I I'm not sure how to deal with the. Uh, the awkward reality, I guess, of Dirty Dancing is that it is a beloved escapist movie that also involves a lot of miserable things happening to people. Um, oh, yeah. It's the, the the classic coming of age narrative where somebody realizes how lucky she is because of the misfortunes of others. And in a weird way, um, it's always lined up in my head with Ferris Bueller's Day Off because they're both about incredibly privileged characters, but only one of them knows it. It's so funny you say that because when I was, um, I have three kids, well, two stepdaughters and a son. Hmm. And of course, I think we all do this where I want my kids to discover all the movies that I loved growing up. Yeah. And it's it's hit or miss, right? Because some of them, even when I'm re rewatching them i'm like ew why are we watching this again it should have stayed in the 80s or should have stayed in the 90s um but the two that worked really well with my kids all three of them were dirty dancing and ferris bueller they really? still for them for them still now they loved both of them and i was like okay cool whereas a lot of the other ones they're like this is awful like they hated the goonies they hated the goonies and i was like oh <laughs> I love the Goonies when I was a kid. And they're like, ew, no, no. <laughs> but 
but Dirty Dancing, they still love. So do they respond to, I guess, Dirty Dancing too, you have the the excuse of it being a period piece, right? So you don't, it doesn't date in the same way that some of the other films do. The attitudes might change, but the the look of it is going to always look like, uh, what, 1961, 1962, whenever 63, it's- I think God, it's set in, yeah. Always off yeah. by one. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film that still- I always, always, I keep saying that. Um, I underestimated it at the time. Uh, I underestimated it more aggressively subsequently because of the fan base that that rose up around it. And then the last time I really looked at it, I was surprised at the depth of it, at how smart it is about things, and also just about how really good Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey are together. They're they just, are, they're phenomenal. Like they're, they're the reason why the movie holds up. Like their performances are solid and he, his reactions are so believable. And I think it's actually in those little moments, they have these little moments that I, I almost wonder if like how scripted they were versus did they, the, were, they were they allowed playing a little bit because some moments feel so genuine. And then that's kind of, that wasn't necessarily common for like big pictures in the eighties. Right. Like they didn't feel that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why if you watch it today, you still, you still feel for these two characters. They're, they're, they're still believable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they're convincingly of the time they're, uh, they're, they're writing that line of um, self-aware performance, like Swayze, it's it's mean in a weird way that he got typed for something like this because his 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 calm and his physicality are so important to the role. Um, and then you can watch him build this little box around himself while he's doing it because this is all anyone is ever going to want to see him do again for the rest of his career. He's just, he's so good at it. It's one of those things where the actor goes away and you just get this icon, this movie star thing happening. And Jennifer Grey's job is to be us and watch him and be amazed by him and seduced by him in a, in a way that we have to be as well. Exactly. And I think it's a nice, um, I think what's other, what, what's also reflect little refreshing about Jennifer Grey is I love the fact that she's not perfect. She doesn't come off as perfect. She's not physically perfect. She's, her character is flawed. And, and I actually really love that. I find it incredibly refreshing. And it kind of, it's like a beautiful contrast with Patrick Swayze, who's just perfect, picture perfect. <laughs> Although, Although he is picture perfect, but I love the fact they, that they let them be um, dirty. Of course, it's called dirty dancing. But I mean, there's so many scenes where he's like really sweaty and you can see that, you know, he probably smells bad in that moment yeah. <laughs> from working all day. And, and I love that they kept all that to make it even it's just it's almost tangible when you look at them. You know, you can put yourself in, in that moment. So I, I appreciate that. The fact that they just it feels, yeah, they feel real. Even yeah. though the plot makes, you know, you don't watch Dirty Dancing for the plot, plot's awful. <laughs> it's just really, really bad, but that's okay. You know, you you forgive it. You forgive it because of the feeling, because of the dancing and because of the characters. Yeah, the plot is, I mean, it's mechanical in a way that you know, we were talking before we started recording about the um, 30s and 40s screwball comedies. And and those all depended on specific tropes and, and machinery that that creaks into play and dirty dancing is even more schematic in a way because it's you're 
basic class battle. It's your basic forbidden romance. It's kind of Romeo and juliet but with an upstairs-downstairs thing. It has a million pieces that I recognize from other things. Uh, and, the, you know, the music is... is um, uh, mostly period appropriate right up until it isn't. And then it doesn't matter because you're already and you've, you've sort of embraced this fantasy that's happening around you. And there's just this sliver of reality that holds it all together. And I think that's why it works for me. Anyways, it's the relationship between baby and her dad. It's, yeah. it's that thing that I am told that is a formative experience for every woman who sees it between the ages of 12 and 17 for the first time. And, uh, and connects to it because it's this, incredible idealized relationship that's grounded by the fact that Jerry Orbach is distracted and cranky and real in a way that no one else in the movie is. And so I can't write it off because it's like, it's this destabilizing presence. The fact that there's a, an actor giving like a theater actor, giving a real performance in the middle of all of this coming of age, wish fulfillment fantasy where the stakes are never really that high. And it's not, let's put on a show, but it's, it's pretty much on that level. And then you just have this undercurrent of a daughter trying not to disappoint her father. And it's somehow becomes the most important thing in the movie. Honestly, that scene where towards the end of the film, when she speaks to her dad on that porch, yeah, I cried the first time I saw it. And I cried when I rewatched re it with my kids exactly for that. What exactly what you just said. It's just, it feels all of a sudden there's it, the film is profound. Like there, yeah. <laughs> there's something that's like, that's, that's real. And that every girl has gone through, right. We all, as girls, we crave for our father's attention and love and unconditional love and our greatest fear is to disappoint our dad. Um, so I think we all, we can all see ourselves. And when she just breaks and you see those tears and then it cuts to him and his like chin starts shaking, even talking about it, I'm getting all like teary eyed. It's just, it's so moving. And it comes in a moment where you're sucked into the whole dance thing. And like you said, like there's a, you know, it's Romeo and Juliet meets Titanic meets whatever, all that put into a musical, right? So you're kind of like on this journey of just listening to the music, looking at the dancing, and then you're hit with this realism with in that scene. And then it just, waterworks you know and I think that's why the last 10 minutes are so wonderful and you smile from ear to ear because you were just brought into that like deep dark sad spot and then you're just <laughs> you're brought into the light with the finale and it's just amazing yeah uh, the the screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein said that she drew a lot of her own experience going to the Catskills and in, in in the 60s and being that person um but also, you can feel her idealizing everything. Like she's she's making it just a little softer, a little sharper, depending on the moment. Um, it's it's the kind of idealized relationship where you know there's no way her father was that perfect and decent. I think that's what Orbach oh, is working against, right? Like he's yeah. pushing back against the idealization by being a little cranky and a little rough. But every piece of it feels fantastical and real at the same time. I, I, and I don't understand that. That's the thing that I think led me to underestimate it the first time because it feels like it's fighting for tone. And then watching it as an adult, I mean, I think I would have, what, 1987, I would have been 18 or 19 when I first saw it. 
watching it as, as a, a much older person, I suddenly thought, oh, no, no, this is a memory film. Like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. The tone is exactly right because it's not quite real. We're seeing a flat, the whole film is a flashback. We're seeing the way something should have been instead of the way it probably was. Yeah, or, or the way that she hung on to those memories, right? It's her interpretation of it. I've always mm-hmm. wondered, though, if, if because um, I read that, that it was basically based on her own life, although she's not baby in this story. She's more um, uh, the professional dancer. I forget her name, but uh, because she was a merengue uh, pro. Um, and and But I wonder if it was as sexy. And I still wonder that. Like, I think it's, it's weird how it brought, Dirty Dancing brought a new, way of seeing the 60s for me at least because mm-hmm. I, I i never thought as you know young teenagers in the 60s as being so promiscuous <laughs> it was it's so i don't know if that is part of like you're saying this fantasy version of her growing up there and being there or, or if it was actually like that if it was you know that fun <laughs> It probably was. I mean, good-looking teenagers have slept with good-looking teenagers for all of time, as far as I can tell. But you do want to package it in such a way that it appeals, right? So in a film like this, it's the moralism is really just something people throw at each other. It's not taken terribly seriously. There are good people and bad people, but sex itself isn't the problem. It's Mm -hmm. responsibility in in the Mm -hmm. course of the narrative. And that's... Like that's something a little more mature than I was expecting from what I thought was an 80s sex comedy as well. But it's, I mean, that's not what it is. It's just the way they marketed it originally with the, the as you say, with the accent on dirty to make it sound more appealing. But yeah, yeah. I think, I wonder if that's why it was mostly discovered on VHS too. Like the video days where people could take it home and watch it quietly in the room by themselves. It was the first, it was the first film to hit 1 million uh, copies sold uh, like home domestic, uh, whatever VHS is. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sell through model was different then. It was, it was way more expensive if I remember correctly yeah. to, to buy a videotape. This is after things like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Trek two were big drivers because I used to work in video. Um, Hi, I did that too. I worked in, in a video store. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that was my film school, really. I went to film school and it was still my film school. Yeah, yeah, um, me too, same here. Jumbo yeah. Video in, uh, in North Toronto in the, late, uh, in the late 80s. Nice, nice. I was in a small village. I'm from Gunastage, so I was at the local Oka video store, but I still loved it, same here. Like I would, quiet nights when there was like no one renting any movies, I'd go down the... You know, and I, I just pick one that I'd never seen and I got to watch movies that probably I wouldn't have rented or my parents wouldn't have rented, you know. So, yeah, yeah. it's a great film school. Yeah, with us, it was the, um, our, our, a lot of our stock was brought in from other provinces, other jumbo videos in other provinces. So we would get movies we weren't supposed to have, like the unrated cuts of things, because Ontario was really censorious at the time. Mm. Um, so for us, it was the, oh my God, that's the unrated reanimator. Put that in a drawer and we'll watch it later, but we can't let people know that we have it. <laughs> It's technically nice. illegal to even possess them, but none of them ever got sent back to head office. Nice, nice. Very cool. And yeah, and Dirty Dancing was a really big deal uh, when I was there. And it was yeah. it was not just teenage girls renting it. It was families. And, and I think as the movie's reputation started to solidify and people understood it was a lot more wholesome than they were led to believe, we got yeah. like parents renting it with their kids and, and people just taking it home as a family, which again, not how I perceived that movie originally. 
Well, not how they intended either. They were aiming for like, you know, late teens, uh, you know, early 20s singles and all that. But I know that I, the first time I saw it was with my parents. And obviously some of the like dancing scenes and all that. I was like, oh, I'm watching this with my parents. This is strange. But at the same time, I, I realized that the film and and did a really good job at making some things not clear for kids. And I remember that the first few times that I watched it, because I think the first time that I saw it, I was nine or 10 years old. I totally didn't get the whole abortion reference at all because okay. they never use that word. Yeah, They always say that Peggy is in trouble, you know, and he got her in trouble. And when I was nine years old, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I just thought, okay, she's sick. She can't dance. Uh, never even noticed the blood in the bed when, when the father or the doctor goes to see her, you know, only noticed that years and years later. So I think they did a good job at making it okay to watch as a family film because even the like harsher subjects are very subtle. And the same thing happened with my kids. Like when we watched it, my son's 10 um, and my stepdaughters are like 15 and 13 and only the 15 year old understood the whole thing. The other two, it just went right over their heads and it mm. did not matter. You know, it didn't take away anything from the film. It was just, they, they enjoyed it anyway. So, you know, I guess maybe that's one of the reasons why it was, it was appealing to the masses, you know? And did you, did you know that it actually premiered at Cannes? Isn't that crazy? That surprised me. Yeah. Although I remember hearing stories of um, these kind of, low rent productions taking themselves to the market and claiming they'd had con premieres. Oh, but okay. I think you're, I think this one was actually legitimate. If I, I think if I was. remember correctly, Isn't uh, that crazy. Been, yeah. I mean, Emilio Delino was a, a recognized filmmaker of documentaries. He was a dance guy um, who he'd made a doc about Barishnikov, if I remember correctly. And, and it would have been the kind of movie that would seem simultaneously wrong for it but also kind of right for can you know if you were mm -hmm. if you were going to take it there i i yeah i should really dig deeper into this i don't actually know if it was an official premiere at can um but the imdb that's what it that says yeah. yeah that's what it says on the wikipedia page for dirty dancing but like you said i don't know if it's like in an official category or if it was just brought to the markets which are definitely not the same thing <laughs> But, yeah. uh, but it yeah, might. maybe, maybe the fact that he was the director and, and because he doesn't come from like a pop kind of Hollywood style film, maybe that's why there was interest there in, in, in playing it there. Cause they thought that, you know, it was going to be some crossbreed docu-dance musical. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's quite interesting actually. Yeah. And then to see what they ended up getting. You know, yeah, surprise. I wonder what the response surprise. was. <laughs> surprise. Yeah, it's an incredibly American film that um, Very. Mm -hmm. does not. Oh, hang on. I found it. I have a special screening. So it was out of competition. Okay. Out of uh, competition. But okay. it makes did, more sense. It did officially play at Cannes in 1987. That's insane. That's insane. I wonder what the response was. Yeah. They probably would have loved it. I think just yeah. the whole, the whole Cannes thing. I've only been once. But there is definitely a hunger, as much as they hate to admit it, for American studio stuff, like American mainstream programming. The year I was there, uh, we saw Kung Fu Panda in the uh, in the in the festival palace, like in the in the actual giant ass screen. 
uh, in the Palais. And it was pretty good. So. That's pretty. That's pretty funny. That's a that's a funny story to say that you saw Kung Fu Panda at Cannes. Like, yeah. <laughs> not I the saw type it, of movie you think you'd see there. Cannes is a weird place, and I think like in 1987, at the height of Euro trashy cocaine drenched screenings, this would have felt like an anomaly too. It would have yeah. been like because it is an American movie with heart, and it's about stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's and it must have been refreshing too, though, right? It must. I don't know. I can just picture the people sitting down and just watching that and trying to figure out if they're supposed to like it. (laughs) Are we supposed to like this film? I don't know. But to to me, what one of the things that I still love about the film is the nostalgia within the nostalgia, right? Like for me, watching it now, I'm nostalgic because it brings me back to my childhood of spending hours and hours to trying to do the lift with my friend, you know, in our pool, um, or learning the other steps of the dances, or just like calling the the one liners. Like there's so many lines from the film that we all know by heart, but at the same time, it's and because it's set in the '60s, you're you know, there's like a nostalgia of that too. Like the film itself is nostalgic of that period, but then today, when I watch it, I'm nostalgic of the '80s. So it's like right. nostalgia and nostalgia, and um, I I like that. I I think that's one of the reasons why I, if if you know, if I don't feel good on a Sunday afternoon and it's rainy and I just need something to pick me up, Dirty Dancing's it. That's that's my go-to. It's my go-to film to smile. Yeah. It is. It's not a guilty pleasure, right? Like, it's just a straight-up pleasure. It's Straight-up pleasure, yeah. I think for a while it was a guilty pleasure. I'll admit. I think, like, late 90s, early 2000s, especially when I was in film school and discovering all these, you know, European directors or Asian directors, I wouldn't necessarily say it that like my favorite films were Dirty Dancing, The Wizard of Oz and Greece. <laughs> you know. But but now I'm like, no, no, I'm owning this. I, you know, I'm okay with it. I can admit I still love this movie, you know. Yeah. And they are films that speak to the audience. All three yeah. of those, Grease and, and Wizard of Oz and Dirty Dancing, like they're all about escape. They're all about reinvention. They're all about becoming someone that you want to be rather than the person that you are. Mm-hmm. I never actually even thought about the parallels between the Wizard of Oz and Dirty Dancing, but it is about a young woman who arrives in a place that she doesn't know and is um, embraced by another culture. Okay, if I, if I really apply myself, I could probably get this whole thing through, but you know, I, her dad is the wizard, which doesn't make sense because she he brought her there. But otherwise. Yeah, but she's still looking for his approval. So yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I'm sure my therapist would find a link there <laughs> in the <laughs> fact that I love these films. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And I wonder if the guilty pleasure thing melted away as the initial audience grew up and understood it better. Like oh, probably. The, the first wave of people who discovered it and loved it were teenagers. It wasn't the adults. And then they got older and realized that it holds up pretty well. Yeah. I mean, the, there is some really obvious um, class division happening. But that is, again, the, the whole point of the story, right, is about someone realizing that working class people are are just as valid as she is. Oh yeah, that's Somewhere. Titanic all over again. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. first it came first, but yeah, the same type of theme of, of of class for sure. Yeah, that's only something that you understand later, right? Like you don't necessarily get all that the first time you watch it when you're like nine or ten or twelve or fourteen. Yeah, you get that as an adult. Just, the rich people are just jerks. You don't really see yeah. why until you're yeah. older. 
Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed watching it as, you know, as an adult is the feminist tone. Like there's something very feminist about that film. First of all, most of the guys, except for Patrick Swayze and the dad, every other guy's a jerk. They're all yeah. like, they're, they're all crappy. They're all awful. Um, and from the very first line, like of, of narration, which I don't even know why there is narration in the beginning. Like there's no narration anywhere else in the film. That's one of the things I was like, why did they use narration in the beginning? Anyways, um, she said that everyone calls her baby and uh, it didn't occur to her at that time that to care, like it didn't occur to me to care. But then, so that sets the tone of like, okay, but I care now because I don't want to be referred to as a baby. Um, and then it just sets the tone of like, she takes her own luggage out of the car, even though there's like a bellboy and like they're impressed that she's taking her own luggage. She wants to go to university where her sister, you know, just wants to be a beauty queen. And so it already from the get-go, you can, you have this character that's not what you usually see especially not someone in the sixties, like it said in the sixties yeah. to, to have so much drive, you know, and she's 17, you know, so there, and, and then it kind of ends with the mom actually like punching the patriarchy in a way, because she's so subdued the entire film. She's almost like pointless. And then at the end, when she, when baby goes to dance on the stage and, um, uh, baby's father stands up to like stop them she says sit down Jake <laughs> and that's like her one line that's like super powerful and I was like yeah mom you know <laughs> and he sits down she wins that conversation so there's there's a few moments that I was like hey good for feminism you know that's you know that the the strongest characters are like even uh, Peggy and what she goes through, she's, she's still a solid character, right? Like she's, she's still strong and, and I don't know, independent and all that. I, I, I also realized that as watching it with my adult eyes that I didn't realize when I was a kid, but I wonder if even as a kid, if it wasn't one of the reasons why I loved it so much, because it was think. very refreshing to have those women kick butt, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it is like, it's, just the difference between a film from the 80s written by a woman and a film from the 80s that wasn't. You can really exactly. feel there's definitely an, an awareness of, if not an attention to, the relationship dynamics and the way that people treat each other. And it's not just in the female-female relationships, but I'm pretty sure this one passes the Bechdel test in a way that no one expected it to Yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, it's it's... A film, I, honestly, I have to admit, I don't think about it very often. Um, <laughs> but when I do, it's affectionate. And I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think it was 2011 when Crazy Stupid Love came out. And the high point of that movie is Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone reenacting The Leap and Catch. And my theater went nuts. <laughs> and it wasn't just because it was funny. It was because this moment was happening and it meant as much to the characters as it does to the, audience. to the audience and that's when I realized oh no it's a thing like Dirty Dancing isn't you can't just dismiss it as a cult movie anymore if, if it's being referenced this way in mainstream studio comedies yeah and and yeah. and paying off that the scene actually works definitely I love that movie too see I'm so <laughs> cheesy oh my goodness I love that movie and that scene is my favorite scene in that movie so <laughs> obviously they they made that movie with people like me in mind apparently <laughs> I think so. But I think that's part of the appeal too, is the, 
uh, the whole structure of Crazy Stupid Love is there's the middle-aged story and there's the younger story, right? And the the gracefulness with which it allows those stories to connect. Mm. And I did the junket for that. I was actually, oh, I went really? to New York. Yeah, that was the, we put Ryan Gosling on the cover of Now. So I got 20 minutes with him in a, in a hotel room, but also did the full junket of, you know, sitting with 10 people talking to the guest in round tables, yeah. something else that's just gone now. But Stone was talking about how much fun it was to do the, like, uh, to do the dancing stuff because you just got to break it down. And she said that Ryan Gosling is a great scene partner for something like that because he will not take it seriously no matter what you're doing. He did the working out. He did all of that. But when it comes to shooting it, it's just like, oh, we're going to see what happens. And he never dropped her. He caught her every time. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I know, right? Like that's. It's even better to hear that story, though. Yeah, it makes it even so much better. Yeah. 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 And it kind of hit me that Gosling is the Swayze of the moment. Like he's our, he's our Swayze. He's our Swayze for sure. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. And in, in, in the sense that there's, there's, I think it's in the, um, the fact that he's just so natural, right? He's yeah. just, I, I, I admire his, his reactions. Oftentimes Ryan Gosling to me, is not just when he's acting or like giving out the lines is it's when we cut to his just normal reactions in a scene. And I find those so uh, it's endearing, but at the same time, it's just mostly believable. And I think Patrick Swayze had that too, had this just, you know, full being of the character. Like you said earlier, just be, just becomes this character and, and you totally kind of like forget that, that, that that's the actor, you know, you just get sucked in by the character and, and, and the sexiness, of course, you know, <laughs> Ryan Gosling's sexy and Patrick sure. Tracy was sexy for sure. So Yeah. I mean, it's a confidence too, right? Like it's this, mm-hmm. this naturalistic, relaxed presence that they have. Um, I, I think of Swayze in something like Roadhouse where it's a bad fit, but it's a good fit because you believe that, you know, Johnny went down the wrong road somehow. <laughs> like it all, all of his subsequent roles come back to Dirty Dancing for me. I don't know why exactly, but I think it's just because that's where you see the realist version of him. Yeah. Um, and why in some other films he seems really affected or struggling with the presence that's required of him because it's not the natural flow of who he's supposed to be. And becoming an actor instead of a dancer was maybe almost the wrong choice for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the option available and and obviously the successful one he did fine. But there is a like a purity to dirty dancing to Johnny yeah. Castle where you feel like the veil is just removed and you're seeing the real person. What was his first film? Um I want to say The Outsiders. I don't know that that's right, but it feels like I mean that was certainly the first time I noticed him. Mm. Um mm. and uh what was the other one? Red well and of course he and Jennifer Grey are both in Red Dawn together. Yes. Where apparently yes. they hated each other. Um, I heard that too, but I also heard, I also heard that they didn't get along during Dirty Dancing, and I cannot believe like that's that must be just a rumor out there, and I have a hard time believing that. But the, the chemistry that they have and the the those little moments, those, the the complicity that I can't I can't see that that they wouldn't have gotten along. It makes no sense, especially when you consider the fact that the original version had a way steamier sex scene that they actually had to tone down because it was too sexy. Like, unless that was part of the dynamic, they hated each other so much that when they got to the sex scene, <laughs> they're <Yeah>. like, all right. <laughs> yeah, anger translates into anger, uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Who knows? 
Yeah, you hear so many stories about on-set stuff, from, especially from the 80s, where people were not exactly professional all the time. And I don't think that's going to end up being either Swayze or Gray. I think they'll just basically be stories from people who were trying to shoot this crappy movie that ended up having real commitment in it and nobody knew how to deal with it. I mean, you know, think about how many careers have been certainly once Harvey Weinstein was outed as having destroyed the careers of women who wouldn't sleep with him mm-hmm. by spreading these exact same stories that they were difficult or that they were hard That's to, uh, had to work uh, difficult and hard to work with are the same thing, but that sort of, you know, like they're difficult. They're hard to direct. I don't want to work with them anymore. It's like, yeah. well, that's not really on them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, although nobody has a bad word to say about Kenny Ortega, the choreographer. So I can assume that they were all working together beautifully then. Yeah, I think so. Well, I hope so. Don't break it for me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the last thing I want to do is shatter anybody's uh, illusions of a beautiful, wonderful world where this movie comes out. Exactly. But exactly. it does like given how rapturously we've been discussing it, both of us, um, it's kind of a weird pivot to ask if there's anything of it that you used or lifted or borrowed or referenced when you were making Rustic Oracle, because those are not the same movie at oh, all. No, no, no. I, it's really strange because the two films that I've made so far, both um, on the darker side, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, although Rustic has, has light, I, you know, there's, there's something, there's, I think Ivy has light, right? The character. So it makes the film, um, but the depth, the first film I did, but there's not much light there. Um, and the weird thing is I am actually naturally more drawn towards happy, fluffy films. It's just, I don't like, I, I know what I love, you know, intelligent, deep dramas. I love that too. But the films that I just naturally gravitate towards are the films that make me feel good. Um, and yet that's not the films that I write. I usually, I, I write what's bothered. I write about what's bothering me, you know, it's like a cathartic thing where I need to like express, you know, my, my anger towards the world or, or, you know, subject matters that I just need feel the need to like talk about and get out in the world. And yet that's not the, the films that I watch. So I don't think there's anything from Dirty Dancing that channeled or made its way through to, to either Rustic or Ledeck. I don't yeah. think so. No. Is it? I mean, is it something that you'd want to attempt? The kind of movie that you? Would... I would love to. Yeah. I uh, yeah. Oh God! I said this recently, actually, because I just finished um, writing a, a drama series, and it's based on uh, residential school. So it was very heavy, hard to write, loosely based on my own family. So there's like a lot of ugh, you know, you're digging into your own things. And when I finished the scripts and I like handed them in, I was like, okay, next I am doing a rom-com or, or a musical or something that makes me smile from beginning of process to end of process. I know that doesn't exist. You can't, you know, there's even with the, you know, any type of film, there's always those hurdles and stuff. But if, if I can make a film that's just lighter, oh my God, it's going to be such a relief. So that's my next thing. After this series is done, I want to write something that's that's a little bit easier on the heart. Yeah. And if it does, you know, if it does bring tears, it brings tears of, you know, maybe not joy, but you know, those, those, those tears kind of like that scene with Jennifer Grey, like the, the scene of baby and her dad, you know, those kind of tears. I want to yeah. make a film with those kind of tears eventually. The, the good cry, the good The release. good cry, yeah. One of those, one of those for sure. Oh, yeah. 
My thanks to Sonia Bonspiel-Buelo, whose award-winning new drama Rustic Oracle is now available on digital and on-demand pretty much everywhere. Thanks also to Margaret Sirotich. She knows what she did. Sonia's not on Twitter, but it's a hellscape these days, so I don't blame her. But you can find Dirty Dancing on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate Home Entertainment in the U.S. and Alliance in Canada. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming in Canada on Netflix. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. In fact, today's episode features Sukian Lee, friend of the show, and Dylan Gamble talking about their pandemic movie, Death and Sickness. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're good. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.